Thank you, Ed. Wow, you folks need a new building. It is, there's something electric about being in a church where they are just looking for seats. This, I sat here and I thought, was this what it was like on the mount as Jesus was preaching and people were just coming um, so eager to hear the good news he had to bring? It's exciting to see believers come together like this. So thank you for the warm uh, welcome you've given me this weekend. I've just had so many marvelous conversations with people and hearing how God is working in your lives in so many ways, to live out the gospel in the midst of conflict. Um, For those of you who are not here for the seminar, just a bit of background. Uh, I work with a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries. We were established uh, 28 years ago to help Christians resolve lawsuits within the church instead of going into court. And we very quickly learned that the same principles that would apply in lawsuits between believers work just as well, just as effectively, on just more of the mundane, everyday things. A father and a teenage child, a marriage is just struggling, may not be headed for divorce, but it's still struggling. Uh, Churches going through splits, Uh, you name it, whatever kind of conflict we have, God's word speaks to it, and the gospel is relevant to it. And one of my joys has been to see, as, as God has blessed our ministry, and we've worked more and more around the world, is to hear stories of how people are applying biblical peacemaking in other cultures. And I recently received an email from a pastor in Zambia, Africa. And he described a conflict scenario that was uh, more complex, I think, than just about anything I've dealt with. There was a young couple in his church, I'll just call them James and Ruth, and they were raised in the church, became believers at a young age. Everybody sort of thought they were just ideal for each other. And sure enough, at some point, they got married. And um, in, in their culture, having children right away is, is part of what's expected. You get married, you start having children. And months went by, and then years went by, and still no children. And when a couple is infertile in that country, it's assumed it's the woman's fault. And so Ruth became... It came under a lot of pressure from her family, her husband's family, just the community in general, that somehow she was failing her husband by not producing children. And the pressure that she was feeling finally led her to to do a very, very unwise thing. She eventually started an affair with her husband's best friend and became pregnant by him. And rather than confessing to her husband, she led him to believe that the child was his. So she goes through the pregnancy, and it's a very difficult pregnancy. She finds out she has twins and um, lots of medical complications. She finally gives birth. The first baby dies within 24 hours. The second baby dies within about a week. So here's a woman who committed adultery. She's lived a lie for nine months. Now both of her babies are dead, and she's convinced God's punishment and wrath is coming down upon her. The depression, the fear, the guilt pressing in on her. And she finally, after several days or weeks of just wrestling with the guilt, she just finally blurted out to her husband what she had done. She admitted her adultery. And he was furious. He was angry. He said that was it. He wanted her out of the house. He was going to throw her out of the house. She begged and pleaded for him not to do that, to to please talk with her pastor, with her. So they went to their pastor, and the pastor's name is Megami. He met with them for a while, trying to minister to them. The, The husband was very... Um, uncommitted to staying in the marriage. He still just thought to throw Ruth out. But finally he said, I'll tell you what, I I will consider staying provided Ruth is not HIV positive. So he insisted on a test for his wife. And the test came back positive. Ruth had AIDS. So then James gets the test to 
James has AIDS. And James was an only child, and so his parents now suddenly realize that who they're, the person they're depending to take care of them in their old age, that's the welfare system in Zambia, is your children care for you. And they suddenly realize their son will die before they do, probably, and they will be destitute in their old age. The ripples just go out. And you can, you can imagine the hopelessness, the guilt, the fear. This is just, there's no way this will be ever be resolved in a positive way. What would you say to a couple in that situation? What hope could you bring to them? What Megami brought them was the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, all the people involved were already born-again Christians. They were saved. They, their sins had been washed away in the sense they were justified, and yet they were, they were awash. They were drowning in the impacts of the sins of today. The present power of sin in their lives was crippling and destroying them. And it's a funny, sad, tragic thing that we often don't realize that we bring the gospel to those situations too. The gospel is not just to save, share with an unsaved person to bring them into the church. The gospel is to share with somebody right now who knows Christ, who will be with him for eternity and yet is wrestling with sin right now, today. And that's why the gospel is so especially relevant to conflict. The happy part of this one story, I'm telling you, there, there is no happiness in a cure. Ruth and James will probably die much younger than they would have otherwise. But by God's grace, as they heard and remembered the good news, the forgiveness they have in Christ, the hope they have in Christ, the mercy, the kindness, the compassion that God pours out to us through the gospel, James' heart was moved to forgive his wife and even to confess his own sin, that he would even consider divorcing her at the midst of a time like And they're still working with his parents for reconciliation there, but Ruth and James have decided they will walk this road together. They will leave this earth probably earlier than most, but they have a hope of where they will be. But they also have a hope of where they can be now, today, because of the gospel. It's real, it's relevant, it's powerful. One thing I've learned in conflict after conflict, whether it's lawsuits, divorces, church splits, or something as horrible as that, is that when the the fires of conflict break out in our lives and threaten to destroy us, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us the power to quench those fires and to find hope for reconciliation. I want to mention to you in your bulletin, there's a a handout of the key points of my sermon if you want to take a few notes there as we go along. And you'll see I've got there a, a verse out of Ephesians that describes just one of the many places where we see the, the glory of the gospel. And let me give you the context of this passage from Ephesians. At the time of Christ, there was a chasm as wide as the Grand Canyon between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had been taught they were the chosen people, and they had twisted that understanding that they were the elite people, the superior people. And Jews at the time of Christ would have nothing to do with Gentiles. They would not eat with them. They would not go into their home with them, to a house of theirs. Um, they would certainly not worship with them. And they, in particular, would not marry children to a Gentile family. In fact, Orthodox Jews at this time, 2,000 years ago, if a Jewish daughter married a Gentile boy, the girl's parents would have a funeral for their daughter. She was dead to them. That's how much the Jews despised the Gentile. If a daughter married a Gentile, she was dead. And yet... 
2,000 years ago after this man named Jesus Christ came down to earth and preached a a gospel of reconciliation and restoration of God, and he was killed. And then this rumor began to spread that he would come back to life. And people were wondering, is this a rumor? Is this a myth? Is this just all made up? But suddenly, in the wake of this rumor, Jews and Gentiles were coming together to worship this risen Christ to pray together, to break bread together, to study God's word together. They they even began selling property to help out other Gentiles who who were destitute, and Gentiles were selling their property and sending money via the apostles back to Jerusalem for the Jews who were struggling with poverty and a famine. And the people watching this were amazed because they knew about this Grand Canyon between them, this barrier, this wall that had separated them. And it seemed impossible to get across. And yet they were coming together right in their very midst. And Paul describes this miraculous reconciliation in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. It says, For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two one, the Gentiles and the Jews. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making peace. And in this one body, his church, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And of course, what people were seeing lived out on the ground was just a reflection of what had happened in the heavenlies, that a holy God with a much bigger chasm between him and a fallen world, that chasm had been crossed. That chasm had been breached and bridged, and God was reconciled to man. And it was flowing out into the world that those who knew Christ were reconciling seemingly impossible, broken relationships and finding unity and oneness and peace with one another. Now, why don't we see that kind of astonishing, news-capturing reconciliation going on today in the body of Christ? We do. There are some stories that happen, and I'm privileged to get reports of these at times. We see them occasionally on the news. But by and large, day to day, why do we see that the divorce rate in the Christian community is virtually identical to our society at large? That's what the recent study by George Barna shows. Why do we see so much conflict and division and church splits and fragmentation? We estimate that Christians in the U.S. spend $20 billion a year suing one another. $20 billion. Why? I think part of the reason is we have, we have fallen into a trap of seeing the gospel as a, as a two-door gospel. We think of the gospel as a door we come through a conversion. When, when we're, we're outside of God's grace, outside of his kingdom, outside of his family, and someone shares the good news with us, and the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to understand, and we see our need, and we trust in Christ, and we come in through this door into the kingdom of God, into his church, we believe, we are justified. The penalty of sin is taken away because Christ himself bore it for us. He paid our debt, and the debt's no longer on our shoulder. Praise God, we're now in his kingdom. We've come through the door. But too often we then think the gospel is something that we, we treat like an airplane ticket we'll use someday. And we put it in our pocket and we walk through life until we come to another door and we're approaching death. We're in the hospital. We just have a few days to live. And we peacefully tell our children, don't worry. I know I'm going to go to heaven because I trusted in Jesus. I believe the gospel and I have hope for eternal life. Now that's a great thing when you're facing death. But folks, between that door and this door, 
If we forget the gospel is for now, for today, for the sins we struggle with, the areas we still want to grow, for the relationships that are broken, we are, we are giving up part of the rich treasure we have in Christ. There's a treasure stored up in heaven for us, but God doesn't want it to just be only for eternity. That treasure is so excessive. The room that it's, it's, it's in, in a sense, the door has burst open. It's spilled out on the floor of heaven. It's come over to the edge of the balcony, and it's flowing over into our lives today if we will just reach up our hands and receive it. Right now, today, the gospel is for you in whatever struggle you have, whatever problem you have. You see, through the gospel, God has not only given us eternal life, but he has made us new creations for right now today with new purposes and new powers for how we live in the next 24 hours, right now. 2 Corinthians 2 or 5.15 says, He died for all, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We have a new purpose for living, a new agenda. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are new, radically new. Now, I wish that what that meant was that when I was converted, I was instantly conformed to the image of Christ. And all my sinful pride and selfishness and bitterness and inclination towards self-pity, whatever sins I wrestled with, was washed away in one magnificent cleansing. But God in his wisdom has decided that's not how it's going to be. It's a progressive journey toward Christ-likeness that we move day by day as he works in our lives to transform us and change us into the image of Christ. Now, specifically, God wants to change how we deal with conflict because a lot of our sinful tendencies fuel or aggravate conflict. Pride, selfishness, stubbornness, bitterness, greed, materialism, you name it. All those things are the ingredients of conflict, of offending people, breaking relationships. And so the gospel is particularly relevant for peacemaking, for resolving conflict. Let me quickly define what I mean by gospel. That, you know, it's interesting, in the Bible, you don't find any particular place in the, in the Bible where there's this concise, comprehensive definition of the gospel. You, you get pieces and bits and pieces in lots of different places, 1 Corinthians 15 probably has the most, uh, most uh, detail in one place in the scriptures. But if you bring together the sort of the essence of the gospel, you could define it like this. The gospel is the good news that even though we deserve eternal punishment, God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and to be resurrected from the dead according to the scriptures so that all who believe in him will be reconciled to God, united with Christ and with each other, and receive the supreme gift of knowing and enjoying God in Christ forever. There's a present dimension to the gospel and a future dimension to the gospel. And we sell ourselves short. We only think of the gospel as sharing the four spiritual laws or some other presentation with somebody when they don't know Christ, and then we put the gospel away. The gospel is for today. It fuels peacemaking by two things, two very important things the gospel does for us. By telling us what God has done for us through Christ and who we are in Christ. And what you'll find in, in throughout Scripture where there's teaching on peacemaking, on reconciliation, restoring broken relationships, You'll find in every one of those sections, 
serious, deep, consistent teaching, not just on the shoulds and how to go to confess and how to go to confront and how to go and to negotiate. Those are all good skills and principles the Bible presents to us. But overarching all of those is this wonderful message of the gospel that tells us what God has done for us already through Christ and who we are in Christ and what the implications of that are and how we live today. For example, Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That brief verse, and many, many, many more like it throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, it contains two primary types of text, two primary types of grammar, if you will. Theologians call it the indicative and the imperative. The the indicative writings in the Bible indicate, they tell us who God is, what he's like, what he has done, and what he promises to do in the future. And anything God promises to do in the future is as good as done. Because if he's determined to do it, it will come to pass. So it's a sure, confident, absolute promise we have. Anything that the Bible says about God is it is absolutely certain. It is reliable. And it's all that he has done, how he's loved us, cared for us, saved us, redeemed us. And then out of that indicative, saying what God has done, we, we then we, what flows from that is the imperative, the, the commands, the teachings, the instructions of the Bible that say because of what God has done, now here's what you can do. Not just what you should do, but what you can do what you can find joy in doing and fulfillment in doing and delight in doing. So the imperative or the commands then flow from that. And if we really understand the gospel, we receive those commands not as a list of heavy, burdensome, pharisaical rules, but as a joy and delight of how we can please and respond to and imitate our Heavenly Father. There are joy to do those things he commands. One way you could put this is in a very simple sense. You could say, God saved me by giving his son to die for me, proving that I am a loved, forgiven, reconciled child of God. Therefore, I do love. I do forgive. I do reconcile. I am, therefore, I do. And if we understand how much we have in Christ, and the gospel is all about what God has done and who we are, and what flows from that is a glad, joyful obedience and response that gives us the most fulfilling, rich life we could even imagine. The more we understand and delight in the gospel and its manifold implications, you've got the the essence of the gospel is like the spoke of a wheel, and flowing out from that are countless implications on how to live, promises, hope, encouragement, instruction. And as we understand those implications, the more we will be transformed into Christ-like peacemakers. The God's character will be infused into us more and more. Tim Keller puts it so well in his, his wonderful book, The Prodigal God. He says, all change comes from deepening our understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of the changes that that, that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, and our identity, our view of the world. It changes everything. 
Now, you will see this dynamic throughout Scripture, as I've said already. The God weaves together what we, who we are in Christ, what God has done for us, and then how do we live our lives. One of my favorite passages that teaches this is Colossians 3, 12 through 15. It's, it's just a perfect, concise um, get guide or template for someone in conflict. And Paul says in this passage, every one of Paul's letters, by the way, includes a peacemaking section. He knows that this early church founded by the apostles, I mean, they must have had really good teaching, they, had, they were very near to the time of Christ. Many of the early Christians had sat under Jesus' teaching himself. And yet, in spite of all that great foundation, they still had conflict. And the apostles, every letter Paul writes, every letter Peter writes, is dealing with conflict. And in one of these passages in Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. It's, it's so easy. Our inclination, I think it's our sinful nature, because we want a much more focus on what we do instead of really just resting in what Christ has done. My inclination, at least, is when I look at a passage like that, is move right to the shoulds. Okay, I'm supposed to be compassionate, gracious, forgiving, etc. And what I found is that if I don't spend time meditating on the introductory passage, we're talking about what God has done, I just find the instructions to be burdensome rules that I cannot live out of my own strength. But when I think about the fact that I am, as Paul says, I am a chosen person. Now, I do not understand this mystery, but the Bible tells us that before the foundations of the world, God knew and loved us. Wow. It tells us that that we are holy, that through Christ we've been taken like a vessel, cleaned up, purified, actually turned into gold, and we're now like the vessels in the tabernacle from Moses' day where they have vessels and says, now Moses said, now this is not for milking cows. This is for being in the tabernacle for holy worship of the living God. And the word that is, that's used here, holy, sacred, set aside, is the word that applies to us. If you're in Christ, you are like a special bull in the temple set aside for his perfect, beautiful purposes. As you go out and live life, you are set aside for his purposes. You're not living your own life. You are set aside for Christ's purposes. It says that you are dearly loved, dearly loved by the creator of the world. The most powerful being in existence loves you as his own dear precious child. Wow, that's staggering. That's staggering to know that God has chosen me, loved me, saved me, redeemed me, opened my heart to his gospel. And then our response to that is, Lord, I want to imitate you. You know, I love the Hallmark movies. Not so much for the movie, but for the commercials. Um, Some of the movies, there's some great, some not so great, but every commercial I've ever seen from Hallmark is incredible. I I would buy a DVD just to their commercials. And there is one of those commercials that just so intrigues me. It's two little girls, and they're having a tea party. And they're dressed up in their mommy's clothes. They've even got mommy's heels on. They're teetering around. And they're, they're just imitating what they've seen their mother do when a friend comes over to have tea or coffee. Now, why would little girls dress up like mommy and act like mommy? 
Is it because they despise mommy? They don't think well of mommy? They just ignore it? No, they love mommy. They admire mommy. I want to be like mommy someday. You see, that's how we show love and admiration. We imitate. And what Paul is saying here is, do you love your Lord? Do you understand what he's done for you? Are you excited about this gift of being his child? Then imitate him. Put on his clothes. Dress up like Jesus. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so on. And that's why conflict actually gives us such an incredible opportunity to do something that can be so fulfilling and rewarding. Now, I admit to you, I've been doing peacemaking for 28 years full-time, and I still don't go, oh, goody, 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 I'm in a conflict. Um, I still don't like conflict. (laughs) But I am learning that even though in my, my emotions sort of go, ooh, conflict, I'm learning in my mind and spirit to say, okay, God, I I don't like this. I'd I'd avoid it if I could, but I'm going to trust you're going to do something good through this. Give me grace to follow you, to listen to you. And I have been the recipient of gospel-motivated peacemaking on countless occasions. I've not only ministered it, but I have been the recipient of it. And I've, I've been impacted by people moving toward me out of the love of Christ. I'll just give you a real, real simple, sort of silly example. Years ago, when my wife and I got married, Carla and I got married, um, we were still, you know, I, I sort of thought, before I got married, I was a pretty mature, godly man. And I got married, and suddenly I found out, oh my goodness, there's a lot of pride and stubbornness and selfishness that I could conceal from other people. But when you start living with someone, and you have that close daily contact, and your money is her money, and your time is her time, and you share all these things, sin comes to the surface. And marriage is part of God's sanctifying process in our lives. And one of, this, one of the really silly little dynamics that Corlett and I had is sometimes we would have a disagreement late in the evening, and it was significant enough we just couldn't find a quick solution, and we would disobey the biblical mandate not to let the sun go down on your anger. And in fact, we would go to bed still unhappy with each other, not screaming and yelling, but there was, you know, the, they were about 10 degrees, degrees cooler toward each other. And we had this silly, idiotic little game. And we didn't even talk about it. We never verbally discussed it, but we both implicitly agreed to the rules. We would get in bed, and he who moves first is weak. Um, we'd just get in. We'd lay down. I'm not going to move. And it was just it was crazy. Now, sin, by definition, is stupid. Um, would you agree with that? Sin, by definition, is stupid. Well, sometimes we're more stupid than other times. And one time when this happened, we got into bed, I laid down, and I went into the still mode before I pulled the covers up. <laughs> and it was in the winter, and we sleep with the windows open, and it was cold. And I, I'm laying there, and the covers are down around my ankles, and we're in this room, and it's cold. And I thought, uh-oh, we're already in the still mood, and he who moves first is weak. I'm not going to move. I'll freeze to death. <laughs> so I'm laying there in the bed with my back to my wife. or sort of back to back, and I am freezing, and I am too caught up, too enslaved by my pride and my sin to move. And after about 10 minutes, I'm so cold, I start to tremble. And my wife can feel this shaking in the bed. <laughs> and... She sort of quite, you know, just gently moves her head. She doesn't want me to know that she's moving, of course, but she looks over to see what's going on, and she sees my predicament. <laughs> now, she later told me what went on in her heart at that moment. There was an initial sense of, 
all right, I got him. <laughs> I'm just going to wait him out. He might freeze to death. There might be frostbite here, but I'm going to win. You know, there's this initial sense of having the advantage. But then her heart started to soften. And God brought to mind how many times she had put herself into a similar situation with him. Made a sinful choice, backed herself into a corner, was too proud to confess it. And how many times God reached out to her in tenderness and gentleness and kindness. Not only God himself directly to her in his spirit, but through other people, when she had offended people, estranged people, and how God gave them grace to reach out to her because of the gospel working in their lives. And she began to soften her heart toward me, and she saw my predicament, and, and her anger, her pride, all these things were replaced by a tenderness and a compassion toward me. What did James or what Paul say? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness. And finally, her heart was softened and she reached over and she took the covers and she pulled them up. She lost. She moved. (laughs) She moved first. And technically, by our rules, she lost. But she won. She submitted herself to Christ. She allowed his grace to flow through her to someone who did not deserve it. And she ministered to me. And it's a a beautiful illustration of of a powerful peacemaking principle Paul gives us in Romans. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll pour burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the gospel. God did not overcome us with wrath and judgment for us. He poured out that wrath and judgment on his own son that instead he could love us and forgive us and show mercy to us. And you'll see on the back of your handout a variety of ways. Whatever situation you're in, whatever conflict you're wrestling with, what other barricade you're up against, and it seems impossible to, to take the next step. You know, should I take the initiative? Well, well, she started it. She's more guilty than I, so I should wait. The gospel tells us that, no, God took the initiative. While we were yet sinners, he moved toward us to reconcile with us. So if we're in a conflict with someone who started it, who's been much more guilty of the conflict than we are, whatever that may be, the gospel says, because of Christ, I can take the initiative. When we have someone that we look on as our enemy, who's done us a great wrong, who doesn't deserve for us to have any word of kindness, any gesture of reconciliation. We look at Romans 5, 8 and it says, while we were enemies of God, rebels against him, he was moving to save us. You can see things like when you wrestle with confessing your wrongs. And it's something that most of us just by nature, we don't easily admit our wrongs. We find it much easier to point at the speck in someone else's eye, as Jesus puts it, instead of dealing with this big log in our own eye. That's our sinful nature. We want to cover ourselves up with our own self-righteousness instead of saying, no, I'm wrong. I can't blame others. I can't excuse others. And when we understand the gospel, and we understand that Jesus has already seen our sins in all their detail, He's looked at them. He's counted them up. He knows what they are. And he's reached down. And he's taken them up. And he's put them on his own shoulders. 
says, I will pay the debt, the full debt for every one of them. And I give back to you my righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Why do we keep trying to clean up our muddy garments and pretend like they're not stained instead of just taking them off, saying, yes, my garments are stained. I was wrong. I spoke wrongly. I was proud. I was selfish. I I give these off. I confess them. And I put on the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. We're so stubborn. We're so proud. We deceive ourselves. When I first started this ministry, I was, uh, we had no revenue for it, no income. We were just in the first stages, and I had to live at home with my parents. I was just out of law school living with my parents. It was actually a wonderful thing. I love my parents. We got along very well. They're very dear to me. But there was one complication in our arrangement, and it was me. I was a relatively new Christian, and I was zealous to drag my father into the kingdom of God. And my dad was a judge. I was a lawyer, so we both were good at debating and adversarial questions and everything else. And, you know, it's really hard for a father to hear the gospel from his son. There's just a pride issue there. Dad's supposed to be the leader, no things. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics working against us, but mostly it was my pride working against us. I, I thought that, you know, some people need the Holy Spirit. My dad needs me. And I just thought I could somehow debate him into the kingdom. And one day we had this conversation, and I, I pressed so hard that I became disrespectful. And I said something that was rude and disrespectful. I dishonored my father. And the, the conversation broke up, and in frustration, I went down to my bedroom. And I was standing there in my bedroom wrestling with God. The, the Holy Spirit was pressing down on me, convicting me. I knew what I'd done was wrong. I knew I dishonored my father. I'd broken the commandment to honor my parents. And I had this sort of conversation with God, and I said, Lord, I know that was wrong. I, I know I dishonored Dad. I shouldn't have spoken like that. I was frustrated. I was angry. I wasn't getting what I wanted. And, and I know I was wrong. But, but God, if I, if I go back up there and admit that to him, he's going to think I'm a fool. And I've never heard the Lord audibly speak to me. I've never had that privilege. I know he can, but I've not received that particular privilege. But there was a thought that came to my mind just, just so instantly and so strongly. I, I absolutely believe it was from God. And what the thought was, was, Ken, he already knows you're a fool. Um, You've made that vividly apparent. The question is, does he know that you're my fool? Does he know that I have saved you from your sins and I am transforming you? Does he know that you're depending on me and leaning on me and believing in me? Is he seeing my love and my power in your life right now? And that's why I say, no, God, he's not. He's just seeing his sinful, stubborn son. And what God impressed me was, humble yourself, confess your sins, obey me. I said, okay, God. And I went up there, and it was, it was hard to admit, you know, I'm the believer, I'm the Christian, my dad's the pagan, and I'm the one confessing. That's very uncomfortable because still this idea that it's my righteousness that somehow is playing into this, and it's not. And I confessed to my dad, and he was very gracious. My dad was a very forgiving man. But he told me later that that confession surprised him because he knew how stubborn I was, how proud I was. And he thought, something's going on in my son. There's some force working here. And he began to see more and more glimmers of this force, this power. And it's the sanctifying power of the gospel of Christ of the Holy Spirit working in those people he saved. And over the next few years, as in particularly the next few months, as I continued 
working as a mediator, and I would tell my father about a case I was going to go out, a, a divorce mediation I was going to work on, and we're, we're always trying to bring people back to reconcile instead of going through the divorce. And I'd tell my dad a little bit about the case. My dad's, as a trial judge, he's handled hundreds of divorces. And he would say, well, Ken, I appreciate your heart. This is good intended, son, really nice of you. But let me tell you, you're wasting your time on this, what you described to me. I've seen hundreds of those cases. They're not going to reconcile. They're, they're angry. They're locked in. You're wasting your time. And I'd come home that night and have dinner with my folks. My dad say, so what happened with that case? I said, well, Dad, it was just incredible. I mean, for about three hours, they fought and argued and blamed, and we were praying. They had people doing this. And, and then suddenly, they just started to soften. They started to, to confess and to forgive, and they tore up the divorce papers at the end of the process. They're now with their pastor starting to work at reconciliation. And the first time I told my dad that, he said, well, you know, there's a few flukes now and then. You know, things happen like that. <laughs> but a few days later, I'd come home, and I'd tell him another story. And he well, there's a few flukes now and then. And, Finally, what he was saying, man, there's a lot of flukes going on around here. <laughs> and I would come and describe situations that he knew. You know, you statistically get one or two things like this occasionally, but this was way above the statistical average because the power of Christ is a force and a power to redeem and to save and to reconcile. And I won't go into all the details, um, but a, a major thing that also came to play is my dear wife, Corlette, my dad adored my wife, and she talked to him about Jesus every occasion she could get. And his heart softened toward the gospel. And an hour and a half before my father died, he confessed his faith in Christ. And he is in heaven today. Because, not because I impressed him with how good and great and perfect I was. I gave up on my self-righteousness. But he began to see the power of the gospel in my life and the people I was working with and in my wife. And so I want to encourage you. There, there's, there's many other examples here, particularly the example of forgiveness. I mean, there's one area we can live out the gospel. Christians, by definition, are the most forgiven people in the world. Your sins have been washed away. In the eyes of God, you have a perfect record. There's nothing standing between you. Now, if we're the most forgiven people in the world, should we not be the most forgiving people in the world? If there's one thing that would mark us when people look at Christians, oh, how I wish it was not. Yeah, they're against the homosexual agenda. They're against abortion. They're against this. I mean, there's a lot of things. Yes, we, we do want to stand for God's righteousness, his holiness, all those things. But wouldn't it be marvelous if what people first thought of when they saw Christians, they thought of Christians, they are really amazing at how they forgive one another, how they love one another. Jesus said that. They will know we're his disciples by the way we love one another, reconcile with one another, submit to one another, confess to one another, forgive one another. So I want to encourage you, whatever situation you may be facing today, there's probably not a, a person in this room that hasn't experienced a conflict in the, in the recent past or maybe involved in one right now. Um, my wife and I have gotten in conflict on the way to church. And we were unhappy, arguing with each other. We pull in the church parking lot and put on the smiley face and walk through the door. And maybe some of you came here like that this morning. And if you don't fall in those two categories, just wait till this <laughs> afternoon or tomorrow. Conflict <laughs> is a reality. It will be there. It will be there. But understand that God gives us those conflicts as opportunities 
to display the glory of the gospel of Christ, to make people like my father, maybe your father, your mother, your brother, your coworker, your spouse, your child, hungry for what we have, thirsty for the living water they see flowing through our lives. The gospel, a passion for the gospel is the key to peacemaking. Or to put it very simply, this little saying at the bottom of your handout, if we reflect much on Jesus and his gospel, if we delight in those passages that talk about how he has saved us, redeemed us, restored us, forgiven us, if we never get tired of going back and reading the first three chapters of Ephesians or wherever you want to go and just camp and savor the beauty of the message of our new life in Christ, if you spend time doing that, celebrating it, talking about it, encouraging one another with it, I can guarantee you it will saturate your soul and you will reflect much of Jesus and his gospel to everyone around you. Let me pray for you. Father, we know that it is your good pleasure to conform us to the likeness of your son. You made us in your image initially. Sin has tarnished and distorted it. But the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work of your spirit is steadily day by day restoring, polishing, refining, purifying, and making us more and more and more like that initial image which we see so perfect in our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray everybody in this room would have a a deeper and more passionate delight in the good news of the gospel for today. Whatever sin, whatever hopelessness, whatever discouragement, whatever struggle they have, they would know the gospel is for that struggle. The good news gives them hope. It gives them a track to run on. It gives them promises of your engaging them in helpful ways. And Lord, I pray you would fill us so full of this joy and delight in what you've done for us and who we are that it would flow over like overflowing cisterns. It would splash on every person we come in contact with. And as they feel the coolness and delight of the living water of Christ, they would ask us, where do you find such things? Where can I get this? And that many people, many people that we are connected with would come to know you and to worship you and become gospel livers themselves. We pray this for your glory, the building of your kingdom, and out of love for you. Amen.